0: The sermon text for today is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 25. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 258. Listen as I read God's word. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities, you did not build houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant then you eat and are satisfied be careful that you do not forget the lord who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery fear the lord your god serve him only and take your oaths in his name do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God, and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and is good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go and take over the good land the Lord promised on the oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord did. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of the Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of the Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. That he bought us out of there to bring us and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all of these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we may always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. Let me tell you about a small miracle that happened in our house last night. Uh, Maybe some of you experienced this. Uh, The clocks were turned back, which means we all gained an hour of sleep, which also means I'm, like, looking out to uh, secretly judge those of you who are going to fall asleep because you had an extra hour of sleep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The the miracle that happened in our household is that uh, I woke up this morning and i got here and i texted my wife dina and i said did our children wake up last night and she said not that i heard and i was like our kids slept through the night on a on a day like this you know it, it's always it's it, it's always when the clocks go forward and you lose an hour they're like up a whole bunch and i was like this is amazing what a gift from god that we get an extra hour of sleep i don't care for daylight savings time i like this part of it i don't like the uh, spring forward part of it but um Hoping that you guys all had a restful uh, night and maybe, hopefully, got a little bit extra sleep last night than you normally do. Uh, We are in the last couple weeks here of this series that we have been in in the book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 1. And we've got this week, and then we've got next week, and that ends the series. And then we have Matt's uh, farewell Sunday for him and his family. And then the following week starts Advent, uh, which is. Sort of just—I don't want to think about it too much—that Christmas is coming, <laughs> uh, so we're sort of heading down that uh, that line. But uh, we got just a couple more weeks here uh, in this series, and uh, I want to invite you to stand, as we've done for this whole message series. We have been setting out to, uh, if if you're able to memorize Psalm one. And I know that some of you uh, close your eyes when we do this here so that you can uh, see if you can get it. I know that others of you have told me, you know, it's really hard for me because I didn't grow up with the NIV. And so it's just easier for me to to think about or to memorize a different translation. And so whatever translation you're using uh, to memorize this, uh, we're just so thankful that you've been uh, doing that along with us. So uh, let's uh, say Psalm 1 together. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Would you remain standing as we pray? God, we are grateful that you desire us to prosper. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage from Deuteronomy 6 today, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us uh, what a life of prosperity looks like. And more than that, Lord, we desire to meet you here. We desire to encounter you in your word by the power of the Spirit. And so we pray, oh God, that you would meet us here today. Lord, uh, we all come from a variety of different places this week, emotionally, spiritually, relationally financially and so God we pray that you would meet each of us where we are today and that in your loving kindness that you would give each of us exactly what we need. God we trust you with that, we love you and we ask that you would do all of this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Well today we're going to be focusing in on this summary statement we are told that the prosperous person, the blessed person, is the one who delights in the instruction of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night, and that person is like a tree that has been planted by streams of water, they are deeply rooted, they bear fruit in season, their leaf does not wither, and here today we're going to be looking at this phrase, whatever they do prospers, and we're going to be thinking about living lives of prosperity here today. Uh, On the front end, as we begin to talk about prosperity, I think it's important that we uh, sort of name a couple of the different extremes that we really have to be careful that we avoid as we talk about the subject of prosperity, okay? On the one hand, there is uh, what you may know as the prosperity gospel, which essentially teaches uh, you should be physically and materially prosperous and abundant all the time. And if you're not, It's because there is some lack of faith that you have. It's because there is some sin that you have in your life that you've not confessed. And so if you want to prosper, you need to uh, muster up more faith. You need to generate more faith. You need to root out whatever, uh, you need to unearth whatever sin that is in your life. And when you do that, When you clear that ground, there will be material abundance and prosperity. There will be health. There will be finances. There will be all those good things that God gives to you if you can just believe hard enough, if you can just get rid of any of the dirty stuff in your life, okay? So that's one extreme that we need to avoid uh, at all costs, the prosperity gospel. But then on the other hand, there is something that is, uh, you could call it the, the poverty gospel. It's a poverty mindset which says material possessions are bad. And this is uh, maybe more subtle, but this is a way of thinking that says um, material possessions are at best something that we should look at with extreme suspicion. This mindset says, uh, you you should not have really nice things. Uh, You could go out and buy a North Face jacket or shirt. Why would you do that when you could get something that's similar but cheaper from a different store or from a thrift store? Why would you waste that money on a name brand piece of clothing or a, you know, a nice car or any sort of good material possession when you could put that money to work in, uh, for something more important like ministry, like the saving of souls, Right? And so it sets up this false dichotomy between material possessions are bad and doing ministry and soul work is really good work. And what it's rooted in is it's rooted in a, uh, a, something that's really dangerous. It's rooted in an escapist theology that says this world's all going to burn in the end anyways, so don't get attached to it. It's rooted in a way of thinking that says, this world isn't my home, I'm just passing through. So none of the things that are of this world are important enough to care about. And so on the one hand, you've got the prosperity gospel that says uh, you should be experiencing material prosperity and abundance all the time, and if you're not, something's wrong with you. And then on the other side, the things of this world are kind of bad, and we should reject worldly things and only care about spiritual things. And both of those are nowhere to be found in the Bible. There are elements of both of those that are true, uh, just to be clear. There's a little bit of truth in both of those, but none of those accurately represent what the Bible teaches about a life of flourishing and prosperity. And so what I want to do this morning in the brief time we have is just think with you and sort of try and chart a middle way uh, in between these two opposite extremes that we need to avoid. What do we do? How do we think about a life of prosperity? So, I want to sort of chart a way to navigate through that and sort of just lay out a framework for uh, what this passage and what the Bible teaches about a life of prosperity. So, the first part of that framework that we see here in Deuteronomy 6 is this God wants his people to prosper. Now, that may sound really sort of simplistic, it may not sound very profound. And yet, we can't talk about a life of prosperity in any way without seeing and understanding first that God desires his people to prosper. Okay? Uh, We see this in the text. If you look in verse 17. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go into and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to give your ancestors. Then you can jump down to verse 24, which says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. So you see, more than once in this passage, Moses is saying God desires you as his people to prosper. And I think what we need to recognize is that this is not some, this is not some isolated thing in, in, in just this passage. This, this idea that God desires his people to prosper is not found only in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is something that is a thread that runs throughout the entire story of the Bible that leads up to this point in Deuteronomy 6. So let's just uh, take a moment and kind of sketch that story, and as we do, we're going to see God's desire for his people to prosper. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, as we do here often at Elmwood, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, okay? And as we go back to Genesis 1, what we see is that God created Adam and Eve in his image and placed them in the garden, which was a place of abundance and prosperity, As you read the account of the creation in Genesis 1, you see the repeated refrain, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. God designed us to live in a place of prosperity and abundance, and what made it a place of prosperity was not just that they had a bunch of nice trees to eat off of. What made it a place of prosperity was not just that they had lots of resources around them. What made it a place of prosperity was that God's presence was with his people. That's what made it a place of prosperity. Adam and Eve were given a command. You can eat of anything that you see around you in the garden. Just don't eat of this one tree that I've commanded you not to eat fruit from. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's instruction. They rebelled against him. They chose to do what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what God had instructed them. And as a result, God expelled them out of the garden. And they were expelled, not just away from all of the the abundance materially that existed in the garden, they were expelled out away from the presence of God, which was their source of life. But even in that, we see the mercy of God and we see God's desire for his people to prosper. Because God expelled them out of his presence and said, I'm going to give you a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. So, even as he's exercising his justice on Adam and Eve for their disobedience, he promises that what was lost in the garden will one day be restored to you. So, God is promising that he's going to bring once again prosperity to his people the way that they experienced it in the garden. We see that God calls a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abraham and Sarah and says to them, I'm going to give you biological descendants, and I'm going to give you a land. And through those biological descendants, I'm going to bring a deliverer. I'm going to bring a rescuer into the world who's going to make right everything that's been broken. Now, of course, if you know the story, you know that there is one small, couple small problems for Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Number one, they're very old. So they're past the age of childbearing in the first place. So it would take a miracle for them to have children at that age. But that's only half the problem. <laughs> the other half of the problem is we're told that Sarah is barren. Sarah is, has her whole life been unable to conceive children. And so you've got these, this sort of double whammy of they are very old, they're past the age of childbearing, she can't physically have children anyways, and God promised he's going to give them biological descendants. And what we see is that God's desire for his people to prosper was stronger than the weakness in Sarah's body. God so desired his people to prosper that not even the barrenness of her womb, not even the old age that they were both living in, not even that could get in the way of God's desire for his people to prosper. We see their descendants that are kind of a giant train wreck If you read the story of Abraham and his children, you think, man, these people are so screwed up. And you see God's desire to prosper his people in that he is patient for generations with Abraham and his descendants. We see that uh, within a couple generations, Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, which is not exactly a picture of prosperity. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're oppressed by Pharaoh. And God miraculously delivers them out from underneath the hand of Pharaoh and brings them into the wilderness, into the desert, which is in that culture viewed as a place of chaos and death. He brings them there so that they might prosper by being in his presence. So God's presence makes even the wilderness, even the desert, a place of prosperity. And remember, this is exactly what we are designed for in the first place. We are designed to be and to live in the presence of God. And we see God's desire to bring prosperity to his people in that not even the barrenness of Sarah's womb, not even their old age, not even the impossibility of this little group of slaves getting free from Pharaoh can stand in the way of God prospering his people. His heart is to prosper them, to love them, and to give them flourishing and abundance. We see he brought them to Sinai. He brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them his instruction. Uh, we, we think of the law in the Old Testament as sort of this dry, boring set of rules we have to follow and it's just it's not all that enjoyable for most people to think about. But remember what the law is. God gave his people his instruction so that they could know how to live in such a way that God's presence could remain among them. Because the people because of their corruption, because of their sin and their brokenness and their idolatry, God's presence, his holiness could not be in the presence of the sinfulness of the people. And so God gave his instruction and said, here's the kind of people I'm making you into, here's the provision I'm making for you, here's all of the sacrifices, all of the rules, all of the regulations that are going to make you a people that is fit for the presence of God to dwell among you. And so in that way, we see God giving his people his instruction So that they might prosper. So that they might experience abundance and flourishing. And friends, this was not just for the people of Israel. Because remember, God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that what? So that you could be a blessing to the nations. So God's desire for his people to prosper is not just a desire for the Hebrew people to prosper. It's not a desire just for this one sort of isolated group of people to experience abundance and flourishing. God's desire is that through his people, through this covenant people, this special possession that he has created, his prosperity would be unleashed into all of the world and all of the nations would experience it. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every culture, every ethnicity, every skin color, everyone would experience this. And that is God's design, that is God's heart. God desires his people to prosper. And so do you see throughout the entire Bible leading up to this point, God's desire is for his people to prosper. And friends, I think that this morning, we have to see, we need to begin by seeing God's desire for his people to prosper. But not just generically. You know, we could sit here and think, okay, yeah, God wants quote unquote someone to prosper. I think what God wants us to see today is that God desires you to prosper. God's heart is that you, in your specific life circumstances, whatever that looks like, God's heart is for your prospering. God's heart is for your good. We see not only that God wants his people to prosper, That's a part of this framework of understanding uh, the prosperous life. Is seeing that God wants His people to prosper. But the second part of this, we see in Deuteronomy six, is this: God graciously determines what prospering and prosperity looks like. Prosperity doesn't look the same for everyone, and we see that God Himself graciously and lovingly determines for each person in each situation what prosperity looks like. I think we have to be really careful. Uh, We have to resist the temptation to equate prosperity with material abundance. Isn't that that what we tend to do? (laughs) We tend to think that, well, if I have lots of material possessions, if I'm healthy, if I've got all this good stuff, well, clearly I'm prospering. But if I don't have those things, I'm not prospering. We have to resist, we have to sort of disassociate the word prosperity, with material abundance in our minds and not equate those things as if they are always the same thing because they're not. Now, Moses tells the people here, he says, prosperity might include material abundance. Absolutely. Look at verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. A land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he's saying here, God is going to bring you into a land and you are going to experience material abundance. There's going to be resources that are there that you have nothing to do with providing for yourself. God is going to provide this for you. And so, yes, sometimes prosperity includes material abundance. And isn't it ironic what Moses says here that the material abundance God provides can lead us to forget the God who gave us that material abundance. When you get into the land, when you experience all these things, don't forget where it all came from. No one intends to do this. It doesn't happen overnight, but slowly over time, we can begin to find our security and our comfort and our enjoyment and our sense of worth and identity in the things that God provides for us instead of God himself. And so there's a danger that those material possessions, that the good things God provides for us, that God desires for us to experience those things would draw our hearts away from him as the giver of all good things, and we would delight in those things instead of delighting in God who gave them to us in the first place. And so I think we, we, we all understand, right, that you, you, this, this follows a progression of, you know, you, you get material abundance, and there's this sort of, um, it becomes like, ooh, I've never made this much money before. Wow, I've, I've, you know, I've never had a car this nice before. I, you know, this, ooh, this is this is kind of nice. I'm not used to this, I you know? And, and you, it sort of starts with this, you know, like, we're pleasantly surprised by this. And then that turns into we, we get used to it. We become accustomed to it, and it no longer is exciting for us. And then we become entitled. And all of a sudden, those things that were a, a wonderful surprise, a gift from God, that we, we sort of experience them and thought, like, man, I've never had this. This is so wonderful. This is so great. Thank you, God. All of a sudden, those things become essential to our, like, basic contentment in life because we become accustomed to them, because we become, um, yeah, we become entitled. And so there's a danger of material prosperity. But the point is that sometimes our prosperity includes uh, material abundance. Praise God when that happens. Enjoy that when it happens. That is a gift from God. And guard your heart that you don't love material possessions instead of God who gave them to you in the first place. So sometimes it includes material abundance, but sometimes prosperity might not include material abundance. This whole chapter is... talks a whole lot about how God wants to bless his people. He wants to prosper his people. He says it multiple times. You're going to go into this land of prosperity. And and sort of the, the theme and the tone of Deuteronomy 6 is that God wants to give you material abundance. And then there's this verse that's sort of just like stuck in there that I think a lot of us tend to just like jump over. Look at verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Let me just kind of read over that and go on to the next verse. Remember what happened at Massah. This is, uh, we're told about this in Exodus chapter 17, where God's people are wandering the desert and they're running out of water. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put Yahweh to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And so they experience lack of material abundance. They experience scarcity. They experience a kind of... um, adversity, and they complain and they grumble against Moses and against God because they don't get what they want to get. And so you've got this chapter that's all about this material abundance and how God is going to bless his people, and then stuck in the middle of it is like, hey, don't do what your ancestors did. Don't do what your parents did. And you're like, that's the, that's the point though is that I think what God is saying to his people through Moses here is, yes, I'm bringing you into this place of Eden-like blessing. And it's not all going to be rainbows and butterflies. Okay, it's not all going to be wonderful. It's not all going to be prosperity all the time because we live in the real world, right? There will be famines. There will be difficulty. There will be adversity. And so as you are in that land of Eden-like blessing and prosperity, don't let your hearts rebel against God the way that your parents did when they were in the wilderness. Your parents saw the scarcity, and it led them to have a lack of faith in God. And you look at it, and you're like, this is insane. God has literally just parted the waters of the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land. He did this water miracle. And the very next thing is they come to this place, they're like, we don't have any water. And it's like, "Well, I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if you had a God who did like water miracles, <laughs> you know?" And it's like it's it's just insane. And so what he's saying to them is, "Don't have a lack of faith like your parents had." He's saying, "Have the faith to believe that experiencing a lack of material prosperity or material abundance is God's way of prospering you." How's that for countercultural? experiencing a lack of material abundance may be the way that God is designed, the way that he wants to prosper you. We don't always like the way that that sounds. And yet Moses is saying to the people, have faith that he is the kind of God who knows exactly what you need and will give you everything you need to lead you to your flourishing and prosperity. He may not give you everything you want, And yet he knows exactly what you, in your situation, what you need to flourish and prosper, and he's giving that to you. We can trust him because we know, we've already seen, he desires his people to flourish. He desires his people to prosper. And so we can trust him with that. And even if they don't have the material prosperity, even if they don't have the material abundance, they are still living in the land of promise and they still have the presence of God among them. And remember, that is the source of their prosperity in the first place. They're not prospering because they have nice houses and gardens and olive groves and all the, you know, the livestock and all that. That's not the source of their true prosperity. The source of, of their prosperity is that they're living in the land of promise and God's presence is with them. So even if they don't have any of the material abundance, they still have the one thing that is actually going to lead to their prosperity and their flourishing. And so, yes, sometimes... Our prosperity may include material abundance. And again, praise God when that happens. And our prosperity may not include material abundance. And our hearts need to learn to trust God in the midst of that. Friends, this is so important for us because we will experience seasons of scarcity. We will experience seasons where we look at our life circumstances We look at our health, we look at our job, we look at our family, we look at our finances, we look at whatever thing it is, and we say, Man, this certainly doesn't feel like prospering to me. If I were to, you know, be given a hundred words to describe my situation, prospering would not be one of them. And we have the temptation in those moments to say, see, I knew it. He doesn't really care about me. We have the temptation in those moments to believe the lie that God is withholding from us, that God does not love us, that he's punishing us, that he's making an example of us, that he's maybe you know making us pay some sort of penance for our past sins. And what we do is we look to what we know to be true about who God is. Remember, it's clear, God desires his people to prosper. And so when we experience a kind of prosperity that does not include material abundance, We don't lose heart. We interpret those circumstances and we say, okay, I wouldn't describe this as material prosperity. No one else would look at my life and say, wow, you're just like, you know, like a a blossoming flower of prosperity. And yet we interpret our circumstances through what we know to be true about who God is. Which is why having any sort of framework for understanding the life of prosperity has to begin with seeing who God is. He is a loving and generous Father who delights to give you every good thing that you need. He desires that you would prosper and we see in the Bible that he has gone to great lengths to accomplish your prosperity. And so we know that to be true about who God is and so that leads us to a place where we say, you know, I don't understand my circumstances. I don't understand all of this. I would choose, if it was up to me, I would choose this differently and yet I know who God is. That's why we have to begin by seeing the person of God and and have our hearts fixed on that. We can trust him. And ultimately, we know we can trust him because God gave us his son. So yes, this framework begins by seeing that God wants to prosper his people. The other part of that is that God graciously and lovingly determines what prosperity looks like But the last thing we have to see is this. In Jesus, God has secured our true prosperity. In Jesus, God has already secured and thus guaranteed our true and ultimate and lasting prosperity. And he did it in a way that was rather unexpected. He did it in a way that was uh, rather surprising. You know, uh, Jesus is the promised deliverer the one who's going to take everything that's broken and make it right again. And he didn't come with fanfare. He didn't come uh, as someone who was well-known, as someone who was wealthy, as someone who had a whole bunch of material abundance. He didn't have that. Jesus was born into a poor family that was from kind of this little nowhere town of Nazareth. He spent 30 years of his life in total obscurity, doing ordinary work that nobody noticed. When he was in his public ministry, he was homeless for those three years. Jesus like couch surfed with people because he didn't have a home of his own. And we see that he was rejected Uh, very vehemently and aggressively and violently opposed by the religious leaders of the time. We see that he was rejected in large part by the people he came to save. And he died unjustly at the hands of the occupying Roman Empire. Not exactly a life you'd look at and say, that's the kind of life I want. That's a life of prosperity. And yet we know that Jesus did prosper because he lived his entire life in union with the Father. And that is what, that is the source of his prosperity. The prosperity we see in Jesus' life was not, oh, he, he had a whole lot, a lot of money and lots of fanfare and people loved him and he had all these nice, wonderful material possessions and his life was comfortable and safe and all that stuff. The opposite is true. The source of his prosperity was not his circumstances or material possessions, the source of his prosperity was his loving union with the Father. And friends, the good news is that when Jesus offered his life in place of ours, he made it possible for us to be cleansed from our sin. He made it possible for us to be to have our sin and, and the idolatry that exists in our hearts, to have that washed away. So that, the very presence of God could come dwell within us in his spirit. And so that thing that is the source of our ultimate prosperity, being in the presence of God through the work of Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we have that thing that is the ultimate source of prosperity. And so whatever else our circumstances look like, that may just be icing on the cake, but we already have in Jesus the ultimate and true prosperity, that our hearts truly need. And Jesus, his resurrection from the dead demonstrated his power and his authority over over sin and death and the evil one. And when he ascended to heaven and is now, right now in this moment, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's in a position of rule and authority over all things. And as he stands in victory... Over sin and over death, what that does for us is it guarantees for us a better inheritance. It guarantees for us that in the end, the brokenness and the sin that we experience in our world will not have the last word. And one day, in the new heavens and new earth, our actual prosperity and our feelings of prosperity. Will be in alignment with one another. Right now, we don't always experience that. But one day, our experience of actual prosperity and all of the external circumstances of that will one day be in alignment. And so we can live with an unshakable kind of hope and confidence in whatever circumstances we face because we know that God has, He desires our prosperity. And he has gone to great lengths in order to accomplish our prosperity. And so we can live as people of confidence and hope. And so that's my, that's my encouragement for you, friends, this morning. Is would you believe the good news? That God actually desires, God wants your prosperity. And that in Jesus, he has secured it. He has accomplished it. As we come to the communion table today, as we do each week, we get to remember and celebrate the lengths to which God went in order to accomplish our good we receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We're reminded of the mystery and the beauty of the gospel. That it was Jesus' lack of what looked like prosperity to us. That's what accomplished our prosperity in the end. And so we get to come and celebrate and receive Christ and communion with him at the table. And so I want to invite you as we uh, come to the communion table today, would you take a few moments of silent confession and reflection and uh, take some time to prepare your hearts as we come to the table today.